to taking the party out of politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is episode one of our special bonus mini-series, in which we'll be looking a little bit more deeply into the five impossible puzzles of political participation from our perspective as voters. We first discussed these impossible puzzles during season one of Taking the Party Out of Politics in our podcast, and if any concept here doesn't immediately make sense, or if you feel that you want to learn more about that topic, please go back and listen to the appropriate earlier episode. Now, taking the party out of politics is joining you on a little journey to explore the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand, because those systems affect all of our lives, all of the time. Left-wing or right-wing, intergovernmental climate change summit or parish council Zoom meeting. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better by understanding what's supposed to happen, by understanding why that isn't always happening in the way it's supposed to, and by understanding what sorts of things we might do to make things better. So, this is episode one of the five impossible puzzles of political participation. It's a mini-series, five puzzles, so you won't be shocked to learn there will be five episodes in total in this mini-series. This episode is about the impossible puzzle for voters, trying to achieve three different things with just one vote, just once every five years. So as voters, we vote for a local representative. So let's start at the beginning. Our political system is called a representative democracy. It's a democracy in the sense that the power is with the people, not with a king or queen, or a dictator, or any other sort of ruling elite. So the word democracy comes from two Greek words, demos and kratos, Demos means people, kratos means power, so demos plus kratos equals democracy. Democracy means that the people have the power. If it was a small democracy, such as just me and my two friends, and we were trying to decide on where we were going to go for a walk, we would just get together and talk about it. Discuss what sort of walk we fancied, what the weather was like, and what time we were going to start, and so on. However, in a country of nearly 70 million people, we can't all get together to talk through all of the issues, at least not all of the time. We would never get anything else done. Instead, in our representative democracy, we choose someone locally to represent our interests and our views, to read all of the details and to think about all of the implications. You may already be aware that the local representation part of the job of elected representatives is pretty important. We often hear candidates, the people who are hoping that we'll elect them as representatives, we often hear them stressing their local background, how long they've lived in the area, what they think about what our local area needs, and so on. And it really is important. This is the person who really is representing our area and trying to get the best deals for our area, both locally, for example, to get more jobs, and nationally, for example, to ensure that the education system works as well as possible everywhere, and even internationally, for example, to ensure that we have good relationships with other countries. Now, having been elected, 
all the representatives get together to talk through all the issues. They get together in a place which is actually named after the process of talking, Parliament. The representatives then become a member of the group of people who talk through all the issues, a member of Parliament, MP. That's good for thinking about stuff that someone else is suggesting, or perhaps for reacting to situations. But how do all these local representatives, our MPs, how do they all get together to make a plan for what our country wants, planning for the future, not just reacting to stuff as it happens? Well, what happens is that the MPs who think in a similar way get together as a political party, as a smaller group within the overall group of MPs, and they put together their plan, their policies, their manifesto. In fact, we already know which political party each candidate represents before we even cast our votes. We know that we're voting not just for a person, but that we're also voting for a person who is a member of a political party. Well, almost always. There are occasionally people who stand for election as independent candidates, but not often. And so we end up electing not just any local representative, but a representative of a particular national political party. A national political party which we hope is going to be able to form a competent government. Because if enough people are elected from that national party, then that national political party gets to form the government. OK, so now it's important to be clear here that parliament and government are different. They have different roles and they do different things. The government is the group of people who are responsible for running the country. The government sets taxes, chooses what to spend public money on, and decides how best to deliver public services. Parliament, however, Parliament is all our elected representatives, 650 MPs in the House of Commons, and it also includes the members of the House of Lords. They're all there, House of Commons and the House of Lords, to represent our interests and to make sure that our interests are taken into account by the government. The government cannot make new laws or raise new taxes without Parliament's agreement. Now, if we imagine that the government is an Olympic athlete, like a long jumper or a javelin thrower or a downhill skier, then Parliament have a special committee which is checking up on how long the long jump really was or whether the javelin is the right weight and shape and whether the government managed not to step over the line when the javelin was thrown. Or... All those people, all the way down the ski slope, checking that the government went the right side of each of the poles on the slalom. And behind the scenes too, checking that everything that went into that performance was fair. Whether that might be performance-enhancing drugs or a special but unfair pair of shoes. OK, so the government isn't really an Olympic athlete and Parliament isn't really a load of Olympic judges and referees. But it's not a bad analogy. Parliament really does look closely at the government's plans and monitors the way the government is running things. Government ministers are required to come to Parliament regularly to answer questions, to respond to issues raised in debates, and to keep both houses informed of any important decisions they take. The idea is that this makes it possible for Parliament to hold the government to account for its actions. But it's the government which is really doing the leading. Parliament is there to do the really important job of checking up on what the government is doing, and to make sure that the government isn't racing off in a particular direction, if most of the members of Parliament think that that is the wrong direction. But the government's setting the pace. The government is doing the leading. The government is formed of a smaller group of MPs, not the whole 650 MPs, plus all the members of the House of Lords who are in Parliament. And the government 
is selected by the political party which got more MPs elected than any of the other parties. Normally, that's more than half of the 650 MPs, so more than 325 MPs, although sometimes political parties club together in what's called a coalition. Well, in fact, it's the Prime Minister who is selected by the political party which got more MPs elected, and then it's the Prime Minister who chooses the other ministers. There's a whole lot of deal-making going on there, Well, because you can imagine that the Prime Minister of a group of over 325 MPs needs to keep them all happy in order that the Prime Minister is able to remain as the Prime Minister. So they often have to appoint certain particular people as ministers to ensure that they've got not just a good team of ministers, but that they're also able to remain sufficiently popular within their political party. But that's a whole other story for another day. The important point here is that when we vote for our local representative, we're not only choosing a good local representative, we're electing not just any local representative, but a representative of a particular national political party. A national political party which we think is likely to be able to form a good government. So that's two things. One vote, two things. Choosing a good local representative to represent our interests and to think about the details of all of the important stuff going on in the country on our behalf. And also choosing someone who is a member of a national political party, which we think is likely to be able to form a good government. Not necessarily the same thing. Susan might seem to be a really good person, but we might not think much of some of the other members of Susan's political party. Or we might not think much of the leader of Susan's political party, the person who would probably become the Prime Minister if Susan's political party had enough MPs elected. But still, we're trying to achieve both of these things at the same time with one vote. In fact, with only one vote, only once every five years. Hmm. Well, makes you think, doesn't it? OK, however, there's even more here. We're not only trying to select a good local representative who also happens to be a member of a political party which we think could form a competent government. We're also selecting a manifesto of policies. Well, what's an election manifesto? A manifesto is a published declaration of the intentions, motives or views of the candidates who are standing for election, and normally also for their political party. It sets out things such as the candidates' values and beliefs and says what the individual and their political party intend to do if they're elected. Of course, a candidate from one party may be elected in your constituency, but their party may not win the election nationally. In that sort of situation, it will be very hard for your new MP to achieve very much of what they promised in their manifesto. But why, then, is an election manifesto important? Well, it's important because the theory is that the list of promises and plans which are in the manifesto then becomes the list of actions and policies and new laws and regulations which the new government puts into practice. There are two important questions to unpick at this point if we're to understand how much significance manifestos actually have. In other words, how much attention we should really pay to manifestos. First, do those promises actually turn into actions? And second, does the fact that any particular promise was just one of the perhaps 100 promises on the list, does that give that particular promise any particular importance? Well, first, then, do those promises actually turn into actions? 
After the election, and indeed at the start of each session of Parliament, which is sort of like the start of a new school term, the government gives the Queen a prepared speech to read to the members of Parliament. It's a formal ceremony. It started back when the speech would actually be setting out the policies and objectives of the King or Queen. Today, in Europe, only the UK, the Netherlands and Norway have a version of this ceremony. But other countries have a similar process, such as State of the Union Address in the United States and other countries. Now, the speech outlines what the government is planning to do in the forthcoming session of Parliament. The Queen's speech is expected, then, to reflect the election manifesto of the winning party. Now, there may be some changes or adjustments depending on the election results and perhaps depending on changing circumstances in the country or in the world. So the manifesto is important because, at least in theory, it's what a political party intends to do. When we're voting for a good local representative who is also a member of a national party which looks as though it could form a competent government, we're also voting for a manifesto, a whole list of things which that political party intends to do. And by voting for it, we are also saying that this is the list of things which we want to happen. Now, how does that actually work out in practice? Do all those manifesto promises actually turn into actions? Well, there's a whole lot more we could say about how accurately a manifesto actually reflects what actually happens. But the short answer is, some of the time, but certainly not all of the time. In fact, if you're interested in more about manifestos, then listen to episode 6 of season 1, Smoke, Mirrors and Manifestos. (laughs) That title might give you a clue as to how often manifestos actually reflect what actually happens in practice. In terms of what we're interested in here... It's certainly the theory that the list of manifesto promises should turn into action. If governments turn out to be not very good at keeping their promises, well, that's a different story. But as voters, we at least have to take the list of what is in the manifesto seriously, because those things listed in the manifesto, even if governments aren't very good at keeping all of their promises, well, those things listed in the manifesto at least might turn out to be actions which the new government might take. Our second question, though, was whether the fact that any particular promise was just one of those perhaps 100 promises on the list, does being just one thing on a list in a manifesto give that particular promise any particular importance? Now, this is important because we can sometimes find that government might claim they have a mandate for this or that particular policy just because it was in their manifesto at the last election. For example, there might be 100 things in a political party's manifesto, But with our one vote, remember, we're not just voting for our local MP and for a national party which seems as though it could govern competently. We're also voting for that manifesto, that list of what the political party says that it plans to do. And remember that we were choosing between a few different manifestos. Now, perhaps realistically in each constituency only choosing between two different manifestos of the two candidates most likely to win. But then, is it reasonable for the political party which then wins the election the new government, at least sometimes to turn round and say, well, we've got to do this. I mean, we have a mandate to do this. What they mean is that the people voted and this manifesto is the one they voted for. And therefore, the people have given us this job to do and we'd better get on and do it. Sort of like the Blues Brothers being on a mission, but without the cool hats and sunglasses and suit and without the cool music too. Now, is that really fair? Is it really fair for a political party to claim that they're on a mission, that they really have been given a mandate to do this or that particular bit of the whole manifesto. 
Was there really a national vote in favour of those particular bits of their manifesto? Or did those bits of the manifesto just happen to be the ones which got through? Because, well, remember, we were voting for at least three different things. And one of those things, the manifesto, was perhaps, in fact, the thing we paid the least attention to out of those three things. And even if we did pay attention to it, then it was just the manifesto which was, overall, more like the sort of stuff that we wanted to happen. More like that than any of the other manifestos on offer. We didn't really vote for this or that particular little bit of the manifesto, and certainly not for every bit of the manifesto. But the political party, the new government, might be claiming that we specifically gave them that mission. OK, well, I hope you can see why that's not really working out in the way it's supposed to. Or at least it's not working in the way that political parties are claiming that they now have legitimacy, that they now have national backing for this or that particular bit of a manifesto. But I also hope that you can see why we need to pay attention to what's in the manifesto, because although it's the third of the three things which we're trying to achieve with our one vote just once every five years, it might turn out to be a list of things which actually happen. And it might turn out to include some things which the new government then claims a special legitimacy for, claims that we've given a special mission to them to do this thing, claims a special mandate for this or that particular policy. Parliament is checking, but we need to pay attention too. So, where have we got to so far? We have one vote every five years. With that one vote, in our representative democracy, we're trying to select a good representative who will represent our interests locally, nationally and internationally. We're also trying to select a good political party, one which we think is probably going to be able to form a good, competent government. And we're also voting for a manifesto, a list of political plans and promises which that political party aims to put into practice, if it gets to form the government. Now, it's possible, just about, that for a few people, all three of these things line up perfectly. Their first choice of candidate is also a member of the political party which they think is the best, and everything in that political party's manifesto is exactly what they think should happen. But let's be honest. Is it really likely that all three of these things will happen to line up perfectly for everyone in the constituency? Or even for a majority of voters in the constituency? They're three quite complicated things. The right person who really knows what your constituency wants and who is going to be the right representative for your constituency and the right political party to form a good government and for all those details of a whole great long list of policies in a manifesto. Now that's a little bit like trying to cook dinner and play tennis and write a letter, all at the same time, one-handed. Well, that's the impossible puzzle for voters. Let me say that again. We're trying to achieve too many things with just one vote, just once every five years. Select a good local representative and select a party which seems as though it could govern competently and select a manifesto of what we want to happen. All three of these things, with just one vote, once every five years. Right, so what we're saying is that right from the very basics of how our electoral system works, voting for an MP and a political party and a manifesto set of political plans and promises once every five years, well, right from the start, that system 
isn't good enough. Now, what we want at Taking the Party Out of Politics is to include you in the discussion of how we can make that system better. First, we want to help you to understand what's supposed to be happening. Then we want to help you to understand why that isn't always happening in the way it's supposed to. And finally, we want to include you in the discussion of how to make our systems work better, to work better for all of us, the voters. We want to hear from you if you have some different ideas, some suggestions as to how things could be different. Perhaps about how we could use our systems differently, or about how we could tweak them so that they worked better, in all of our interests. If you have any ideas, we would love to hear from you. In Season 3 of Taking the Party Out of Politics, we will be exploring various ideas about how we could make things work better. And we'd love to hear from you. Just email us with your ideas at info at talktogether.info. If your ideas are good, or if they help us and others to understand things more clearly, then we'll include them in Season 3. We might even contact you to interview you about your suggestions. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Today, we've looked at the impossible puzzle for voters. Next time, we'll be looking at the impossible puzzle for voting. Not the same thing at all, as it turns out, but still a big problem with the way our electoral system works. Or rather, doesn't work. At least, not properly. For now, thank you for listening to Taking the Party Out of Politics. You can download each episode separately from the links on our website, www.talktogether.info where you can also get transcripts of the podcasts plus links to all the references for all our sources. Or you can get all of our episodes downloaded automatically. Just subscribe to Taking the Party Out of Politics on iTunes or Acast. And if you found this interesting, please tell your friends and give us a rating. That not only helps other people to find us, but it also just makes us feel useful. Thank you in advance. Yeah.